Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into episode one, Jamestown Cannibalism. In 2013, researchers at the Smithsonian Institute in America announced that they discovered the remains of a teenage girl at Jamestown, Virginia. She died during the infamous winter known as the Starving Time, when the colony's several hundred strong population was reduced to just 60 by famine and disease. Dubbed Jane by the team that discovered her, her remains were found in a rubbish deposit within the cellar of a historic building. But when they examined her bones, researchers were stunned to find that her skull and shin bone had been butchered for meat. It was the first physical evidence of colonial cannibalism. begins in 1606, when three ships set sail from England to found a new colony in North America. Unlike Spain, Portugal and France, who'd been colonising the New World for over a century, England had been slow to establish a stronghold in the Americas, and attempts during the latter part of the reign of Elizabeth I had failed dramatically. They landed on the 26th of April 1607 and selected an inland site next to a river. They named it Jamestown after their king, and it was hoped that this time things would be different. I talked to Dr. Misha Ewan to unravel the story. Dr. Misha Ewan, thank you for joining me on this brand new podcast. You are a font of authority on all things Jamestown and the Virginia Company. So today we're going to be looking at the claims of cannibalism that took place during a period known as the Starving Time. But first of all, I just wondered if you could set the scene. So imagine you're on a ship arriving into Jamestown in 1609. What would it have looked like? Jamestown is located about 50 miles up the James River in the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. And if you had approached the settlement in 1609, what you would have seen is a palisaded fort surrounded by woodland with some mud and timber buildings. Archaeologists have found evidence of a barracks and a quarterhouse, as well as a church and burial ground. And then just outside the walls of the fort, a factory which they think was used for storing goods and might also have been seen by settlers as a more secure location to conduct trade with the local Virginia Indian population. So in 1609, Jamestown still has the feel and appearance of a military outpost rather than a more established urban settlement. And one reason for this is also the social makeup of settlers. By the winter of 1609, there are around 300 individuals living within the fort, but most of the settlers are men, and this includes men from gentry backgrounds with military experience, as well as labourers and artisans. There are actually very few women, and only a couple whose names we know. One of them is Anne Burris, who arrives with her maid in 1608. And conditions for the settlers at the beginning of the winter of 1609 are very harsh. They're suffering poor health and disease as well as food shortages. 
And it's all of these conditions coming together which helps create the crisis that they face in the winter of 1609 to 10, which later becomes known as the Starving Time. Could you tell me a bit about the role that the Virginia Company has played in the establishment of this settlement and the lives and livelihoods of the people that are living there? So the Virginia Company is a joint stock company. So it's made up of groups of investors who have all bought shares. And the company is basically solely responsible for the governance of the colony, for sending out the settlers. And they are the ones that are administering the colony with supplies, funding ships and When they send settlers in 1607, to begin with, there's only around 100 men that go. And these are men with military backgrounds, but they also do try to send some skilled colonists as well who will be able to, you know, have skills in things like farming and husbandry as well. So planting um, crops. So basically, we've got this settlement, I suppose, of around 300 people who are living in difficult circumstances and they're dependent on the aid of an external company for their survival so to speak would that be a fair summation of the situation they're in do you think yeah definitely so it it really is only the investment of the company and its stockholders that is keeping this settlement going and one of the issues actually around this time is that because the colonists are struggling to you know discover the supposed riches that they thought they were going to find in virginia there are not profits coming out of the colony and going back to the investors in England to the same degree that they had hoped. So some investors are actually losing interest and the Virginia company is struggling to recoup some of that investment and actually encourage shareholders to keep paying into the company. So they are struggling to supply the colony in these first few years and increasingly struggling to actually get people to want to go and migrate as well because, you know, there are these stories that, you know, things are a lot tougher there than they'd anticipated that trade with the local indigenous population is perhaps not going as smoothly as they had anticipated as well. So it's in 1609 that actually there's a new charter for the company. And this year, there's a new kind of impetus for colonisation as new investors subscribe to the company. And that's what allows them to send a whole new supply of ships to Jamestown with several more hundred colonists aboard but actually this puts further strain on the settlement which is already struggling in terms of food supplies and it's really these kind of circumstances that help kind of catalyze events um, around the starving time of 1609 to 10. So it's my understanding that the colonists believed that they might be able to trade with the native population as well. Did this happen or was this did this cause friction during the period? There's some degree to which that happened. Certainly when the colonists arrived, they did anticipate that they would be able to trade with the local indigenous population for food. What actually occurs is that when the settlers arrive in 1607, they don't know this, but they've arrived in the middle of a drought that would last for about seven years. So the local Indian population are actually facing their own food shortages, and this makes them less willing to actually trade food with the English settlers. But they are sending out these missions to different groups, you know, sending out settlers to try and go and find food supplies. But essentially, the pressure that they're putting on the indigenous population is leading to conflict. And in the winter of 1609 to 10, they end up having to hold themselves up in the fort because any time they leave to try and fish and hunt and go and trade for food, they're being attacked. So essentially you now have this kind of under-provisioned, sick population of settlers who are trapped in the fort. And this is what, yeah, becomes known as the starving time. 
So they're all in this fort then, the 300 or so of them at the beginning of this infamous winter. They've got no food supplies coming into the settlement. Every time, as you said, they go out, they're being attacked. Do we have any documentary evidence about how they coped during this period? The answer is that they don't cope very well. Um, And the evidence that we have, so... To begin with, at the time, there's some suggestion in the Virginia Company's own records that these rumours are, you know, making their way back to England. Some colonists are trying to escape and they're bringing back these stories of disease and starvation. It's not until around 1624 that there's actually a published account. And this is George Percy's account of the starving time. And he writes this account basically to challenge the more idealised version of events that John Smith has published in his History of Virginia. Percy's account isn't widely known until the 20th century, but that's not to say that people in England aren't aware of what is going on in Jamestown. I mean, colonists are sending letters, people are travelling there and back, so some of these stories are making their way back into the public sphere in England. And actually, it's something that the Virginia Company really tries hard to control. They try to discredit some of these stories of shortages and death and disease because, again, it's scary for them because they want their investors to carry on investing and they're not going to do that if they think it's a hopeless mission. So there is a wider sense that people are aware of what's going on, but these stories are not put down, you know, in print until almost two decades later in the mid-1620s. Goodness, so they're trying to suppress the negative stories of of what happened during that winter. And in terms of the scale of death during this period, were there any figures that are out there that we can look to to kind of gauge how bad this actually was? Yeah, so historians estimate that there are between 240 to around 300 settlers at the beginning of the winter. And at the end of the winter, there are only 60 who have survived. And things are so dire that they actually consider abandoning the settlement altogether in May. And it's only a month later when Lord Delaware arrives with his ship and a new supply that they actually, you know, they're instructed, no, you need to stay and we need to continue. But what's really interesting, actually, is that in some ways the starving time has actually given us such a rich depository of surviving archaeological material because they're abandoning the colony in that spring they fill these kind of trash pits with, you know, all the things that they're leaving behind, thinking that they're going to leave the settlement altogether. And now archaeologists at Jamestown are excavating some of the objects in these pits, and that's where they're finding all this rich material of what life was like in the colony for those first few years. So, you know, in some ways we wouldn't have had that survival of evidence had the starving time not happened. Wow, so you've got their belongings almost frozen in time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, all kinds of everyday items that just were discarded and presumably a lot of personal items that would have belonged to people who maybe had died as well because there are lots of kind of personal objects in there alongside things like discarded foodstuffs and household items. But yeah, it's really, it's like a time capsule of what life was like in the colony of those first two years. And it's in one of these pits that some of the human remains of the starving time were discovered as well. There are a few accounts of cannibalism from this time. John Smith. One amongst the rest did kill his wife, powdered her, and had eaten part of her before it was known, for which he was executed as he well deserved. Now, whether she was better roasted, boiled, or carbonadoed, I know not, but of such a dish as powdered wife I never heard of. This was that time which still to this day we called the starving time. George Percy. 
And now famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face that nothing was spared to maintain life, and to do those things which seem incredible, as to dig up dead corpse out of graves and to eat them, and some have licked up the blood which had fallen from their weak fellows. But up until extremely recently, there was an understandable doubt as to whether any of this had really happened. Most Jamestown experts put the claims of cannibalism down to attempts to sensationalise the infamous winter and discredit the Virginia Company. But we now know that cannibalism did indeed take place. In other words, the reports have been backed up by evidence. Misha, this is the obviously the darker side of, of that story. We know that recently there was the discovery of a school that has been named Jane. Can you tell me a little bit about her or what we know about her? I mean, there are claims that she was the, a victim of cannibalism. I mean, is this true? Jane's bones were discovered in 2012 during excavations of a cellar and a deposit of a variety of material in there. And the archaeologist at Jamestown sent her bones for testing with the chief forensic anthropologist of the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. And what they found was that Jane was perhaps around 14 years old, perhaps an individual of high status or at least living in a household, maybe as a maid with other individuals of high status based on her diet. And they found that both her skull and her leg bone had been mutilated and signs essentially that someone had tried to remove muscle and tissue and marrow from these bones for food. The forensic anthropologist suggested though that the kinds of cuts that he found on these bones suggested that they'd been made after death. Goodness. There's no evidence that she was murdered but that the butchering of her remains came potentially after she was one of the victims of the starving time and that someone is trying to cut meat from her bones and this does actually fit with George Percy's written account, who later talks about individuals digging up graves and, and trying to find food that way. So there is a written record of cannibalism, but this was the first time that archaeologists had actually seen that backed up in the material evidence of Jamestown as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a really groundbreaking discovery and something that just cast a whole new light on this history and the rumours that were prevalent there at the time as well. It's a very, very sad story. I wonder about the wider consequences of the incident. You mentioned that the account that was written in the 1620s wasn't really widely known about, but I mean, Jamestown in general was the first major colonial settlement in North America and it did have a life, but it wasn't sustained for a long period of time. I mean, what are the consequences of Jamestown in general and the starving time in particular to our history and understanding of colonialism? So I think it's especially relevant and interesting because Jamestown is the first permanent settlement in English North America. And I actually think it's because of this grisly history that it hasn't been viewed, you know, in the same way, perhaps the Plymouth Plantation. For a long time, historians talked about Jamestown as being a failed colony. And that's something that, you know, even now when I'm teaching this history of my students, that they often think of it as a settlement that failed. And I have to remind them that, you know, it did have all these setbacks and there were you know, lots of issues. There was high rates of mortality and disease and cannibalism. But it did still survive this period and it survived the complete breakdown of the Virginia Company. 
And it's actually in the context of the breakdown of the Virginia Company around 1624 that these stories emerge in George Percy's account. He's trying to challenge these overly optimistic, positive accounts of what the colony has been like for the preceding 20 years, because there's a real, there are challenges from both sides about, you know, what kind of direction the colony should go in, whether it should still be overseen by a company or whether it should be brought under government control. And what happens in 1624 is that the company breaks apart and the colony is brought under crown control. Certainly the stories of cannibalism and famine and disease add to this increasing sense in England that a company is not fit to govern a colony and that trade companies are really only there for commercial endeavours. And King James says something along the lines of, you know, never again will there be a company for government, but only for trade. Right. It's a sense that there have been all these failures and cannibalism certainly adds to that picture. And I think it's important probably for just kind of shifting how we think about some of these early colonial ventures that not only were they not necessarily celebrated at the time as well and there were criticisms and critiques that people didn't always view them through an overly you know optimistic lens and they were aware of what was going on there was actually quite a good sense of you know public awareness of what was happening in Jamestown at the time. Well this has been really really interesting and I'm so grateful for you giving up your time to talk about this it's a topic that is so rich for exploration and um, we could probably chat about this for a very long time. (laughs) But um, Misha, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Cheers. As Dr Ewan explained, the colony was brought back from the brink in the spring of 1610 with the arrival of Lord Delawar, who brought a year's worth of supplies and became Jamestown's first governor. The settlement remained the colonial capital until 1699. We may never know the full scale of the horrors endured by Jane and her neighbours during that notorious winter, but at least some of their story can be told. This